hello, and welcome to the Regrettable Century. It's the boys, all four of them. We're here to talk about the poverty of third campism, right? Yeah, yeah poverty of philosophy. Uh, yeah, yeah, the poverty of third campus philosophy. And all, th- all four of us are from the IS tradition. So that is our particular view of third campism that we were like raised up in politically. But there are many other stripes of third campism. But I think what we're dealing with primarily here is the Trotskyist third is Trotskyist third campism because I know there's there's a left com third campism, there's all kinds of other uh, there's an anarchist obviously anarchists are their own permanent third camp third fourth fifth sixth seventh eighth twenty seventh a thousandth camp they're they're but, all permanent whatever whatever the number of camps is plus one you're right if there, yeah. if there are 15 <laughs> camps then they're the 16th camp but i think that we've been criticized when talking about third campism as only talking about trotskyism and i think that it's okay if we only talk about trotskyism because that's the only one that matters that's the <laughs> that's only true. one of any size that has existed in the united states all yeah. of American politics at this point is Trotskyist or post-Trotskyist. So I think it's fine if we deal with everything except the statistical outliers. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I also further, I, I guess, at least for me, I want to kind of examine assumptions and foundations and then what happened. And I kind of want to just kind of make sense of my own like sympathy and also disgust. That's what I would like to get out of this is I want to express yeah. my sympathy, my sympathy with the origins of the third camp yeah. and my total disgust with not just the latest version, but kind of all of the third camp, despite it's, my sympathy. It's, <laughs> it's interesting you frame it that way because with several of these uh, articles that we read, um, you know, even even the ones coming right out of the IS review, uh, like the first half, I'm feeling sympathy when they're kind of they're kind of fr- framing the history of NATO and the, yeah. the impossibility of having a, a whatever, a thorough position one way or the other. And then the second half is just discussed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You like, know. um, like, uh, Natalia Sodova's, uh, letter of resignation from the fourth international. Yeah. When I read that, I I'm sympathetic all the way through. I'm sympathetic though, in yeah. the way that I would be sympathetic to like a friend whose dog died or sympathetic to <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean like there's a there's there's or a way who, to read whose this. husband was murdered by the regime that she's you know refusing to right. support like it's understandable on a yeah. very human level like the the her expression of i cannot and and, and she, frankly her the 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 piece that she wrote resigning from the fourth international really she says this she says like i cannot bring myself to agree you know to to uh, uh be in line with this you know what this the position of the uh of the organization which is uh defense of the uh stalinist regime that's it, it reads to me anyway as a very uh human response a very real genuine very authentic uh human response of of like I cannot bring myself to defend this regime, this institution, this uh, 
you know, these people, this bureaucracy and all, all their evils, uh, when I can see and know of their evils and when, uh, you know, uh, one of their great evils was directly and personally perpetrated against her and uh, yeah, the love of, of her life, you know, like it, I say you can sympathize with that as a human being and, and, um, and still make render like political, uh, analysis of the position, you know? Well, yeah. And she's, she says that she, I can only read it sincerely. So before she goes into any of the reasons, any of the details, any of the argument, she says the step I feel obliged to take has been a grave and difficult one for me. And I can only regret it sincerely. It's like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Everything else after that, people whose uh, entire worldview and their entire way of navigating uh, social realities from decade to decade are based upon part of this letter, but minus <laughs> the minus the deep pains and the sincere regrets. <laughs> yeah. That's what I had taken issue with. Yep. Yeah, that's that's. I think that is so exactly uh, um, uh, uh, such a useful insight uh, that I, you know I don't think I had extrapolated from it uh previously that before you said that that the uh what it, precisely what makes her anal- you know her argument here so sympathetic is the human side of it and that human side of it is totally absent yeah. from <laughs> all of the sort of successor uh third campus positions um that that follow that's why a marxist humanism exists right because of yeah. the perceived need to to uh inject human qualities back into Marxism because of how like cold and um, I, I would say, I mean, it's just a determinist, uh, rationalist, uh, completely lacking of the human element that Marxism had become in the first half of the 20th century, even the parts of Marxism that I actually agree with. Yeah. Um, I was just going to interject uh, that maybe we, for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, uh, resignation and the and the reasons behind it. Maybe we could quickly outline that for them. Why she's resigning in the first place? Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. The other thing, though, is <laughs> I, we should definitely do that. I also I feel like we should acknowledge and make a space for it at some point. Uh, the this reality that like a whole bunch of our audience has no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> and. It's not just because this figure and this historical event doesn't seem to be all that um, immediately relevant or that it's far away or whatever, but also because I don't know if the politics of the third camp, uh, historically understood, are still um, tangible and like obvious anywhere. So I don't know what to do with that, but it's just, that's just something I would like to state early on, just in case we never get to it, at least it's been said. No, you're right. We it's should, almost like define our terms. It's almost yeah. like there's a there's a ghost uh, hearkening to the conversation you had with Neil years ago that was just aired. Uh, there's a ghost of the third camp, the residual uh, yep. echo that yeah, no longer exactly. has a, a manifest uh, anchor. Well, and also that's entirely true. And to the extent that it ever does show up, it's like covered in layers of something else, so that it. It sounds like, and it it feels like, and and really it is liberalism, State Department liberalism. Yes, but its origins—that's what we're really discussing. Yeah, what is what is foundational to all of the liberalism that passes for socialist politics today? That's what it is. Yeah. So what is what is um, who wants to lay out what Natalia Sadova 
Trotsky's widow is re- resigning from the Fourth International for, for essentially what Natalia Sadova is doing is objecting to the continued consideration of the Soviet Union as a worker state and the consideration of the new uh, actually existing socialist states as uh, degenerated or deformed worker states however however uh, they they're however they're portrayed by different stripes of Trotskyists in the fourth international she's objecting to those uh, basically to the idea that any any of the existing social states are worker states uh, but especially the newer states because by considering those newer states the ones that existed after World War II in Eastern Europe and then the and uh, and anywhere else that uh, if we actually consider those worker states then we're assigning a progressive revolutionary role to Stalinism which she says is inherently reactionary so that's our that's a breaking point for her it's right. like like you cannot consider the uh, any of the Warsaw Pact states to be socialist or to be worker states uh, because then you're uh, erasing the original criticism of Stalinism that the left opposition broke with uh, Stalin over in the first place. And we should mention, it bears mentioning that this is published in the militant in 1951. Right. So there's yeah. also like uh, China at this point is a, another state that's included here. And I, I don't believe there are any other ones yet. Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia. Okay. Yeah. She specifically mentions Yugoslavia right. as well. Right. Right. Which is not a Warsaw Pact state, but it is one of the ones in Eastern Europe that becomes communist after the Second World War. Right. And it, it's kind of an historical irony because subsequently later, uh, Tito's regime is kind of held up as a third way. Um, right? Yeah. yeah. So there are two, there are two, different, uh, two different approaches to this. The first thing is I feel like Natalia Sadova is commendable when compared to other people who have similar conclusions around the same time. So like mm-hmm. uh, Max Schachtman and James Burnham mm-hmm. in 1940, they split out of the SWP and they were like, well, these Schachtman, he was like one of the leaders. So they take a group of Trotskyists, whatever, out of the SWP. And you fast forward into the future a little bit. Uh, Schachtman uses his criticism of the USSR and of Stalinism as part of the reason why he's so uh, gung-ho about the Vietnam War. So that's... <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Natalia Sadova does not go down that track. And so that's yeah. that's commendable. And, and <laughs> he's part of the reason why everyone says th- yeah. the entire Neocon project is just littered with former Trotskyists because right. there were, I think, like four or five prominent Trotskyists that became... Neocons. Um, I can think and, of two. Um, okay, who yeah. who were you thinking of? And I'll add David Horowitz to the list because I know you're not thinking of him. So maybe well, three then. Uh, James Burnham. Actually, I can only think of one. James Burnham. Yeah. Burnham, Burnham oh, wait. right? Paul Wolfowitz. Yeah. Yeah. L- later. He's more n- new left, right? Yeah. Um, but I think in in mentioning Burnham and Shackman, you're you're bringing in um, a, a relevant discussion we can have about the relationship between third campism and this sort of uh, 
thing Chris is talking about, this uh, political apostasy from, you know, opposition left to, you know, in the case of Burnham being on the editorial board of uh, William F. Buckley's <laughs> yeah. uh, National Review. Yeah. Um, I was just going to interject quickly that, uh, yeah, there's Christopher Hitchens, which is sort of a an inflection right. on this. He's not purely neocon, but the sort of former Trotskyist who becomes an, an, an advocate of U.S. empire because of its progressive totally. role in the world. Although, Dude, stranger, that- he, he never disavowed his Marxism, which sets him apart from... Um, I mean, in, in effect, he did, but <laughs> he never like completely disavowed... Marx, which is a very strange, maybe postmodern. He never formally <laughs> did. For- okay. No, he he actually like never. He not only did he disavow, not never disavow Marxism, but he actually said that all of his political opinions are informed by Marxism, yeah. all the way up until he died. Yeah. So like he he was like you know not a professed Marxist, but he said that his political opinions were informed by Marxism. Yeah, he functionally he functionally was saying that like you know with with the collapse of the Soviet Union and you know yeah. I guess coming out of the IS tradition which was already even with the existence of the Soviet Union the critical of it uh, highly critical of it um, uh, the most progressive force on the global right. stage was the eradication of these backward pre-capitalist societies by uh, U.S. empire and so he was quite literally in, in a Marxist sense, an advocate yeah. of the progressive force uh, that the United States empire played on the global stage uh, mm-hmm. uh, in its war for empire in the Middle East. So that, that let, so he, he was He's basically throwing his saying, weight in with the, uh, with the neocons without being a neocon uh, in, in form. Yeah. He took a similar position to that taken by a, then a whole bunch of revisionists during the second international period. Yeah. People, people like uh, Edward Bernstein or even, even more uh, explicitly, uh, I don't remember his first name, Volmar. He's a German SPD. He's an advocate of colonialism and all, all of the things that like help. I'm putting my fingers, they're doing air quotes for the listener. The things that like help <laughs> develop the economy of far flung place like Lam- Namibia and whatever. Similarly, like uh, former Marxists in Italy, like Giovanni, Giovanni Gentile, um, they thought that empire could be progressive as well. And that mm-hmm. the, the liberal state could be uh, turned into a corporatist state to help soften the blows of, uh, of a development um, against the working class. And that's how fascism was formed. I was going to say that just is fascism, right? Yeah, yeah. That's Giovanni, Giovanni Gentile is the the uh, essentially the the brains of Italian fascism. Um, but I think that we can look at like those State Department socialists, those neocons, and slash those State Department socialists because there are a few State Department socialists who never actually become neocons and who just stay socialists. Yeah. Right. Um, as the sort of like slippery slope. The, the the logical extremity of third campism, right? Yeah. But I actually, I think the Hitchens, uh, sorry to interrupt you. The Hitchens will, right. relate, will relate to this, um, this last article you shared uh, by Barry Finger um, when he starts to kind of whittle us down to either 
democratic imperialism versus authoritarian imperialism. Right. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, the lesser of two evils, which, I mean, what, who was that article by? Who published that? Was it Workers' Liberty? Workers' yeah, Liberty. Yeah. yeah, Workers' Liberty were like uh, more third campus than the IST uh, back <laughs> in the day. I remember they used to talk shit about us and the British SWP for being campused. Uh, so th they're essentially like... Uh, what they are is they're anarchists. They are, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're anarchists, essentially. But they, they claim Trotsky to be Trotskyists. Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that was kind of like an, a, 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 a thought that I was having like throughout all of the all of the articles, including Lance Selfa and, or whoever it was uh, in the IS tradition, uh, uh, that it's it's all just... It's all just anarchism, uh, but you, uh, but you just don't want to like let go of your the your identity as a Leninist or Trotskyist or whatever. Yeah, but, well, it's because it's because of how much they, they want to maintain the nineteen seventeen uh, fealty. So yeah, they're anarchists, yes, but, but only anarchist in the nineteen twenties and onward. Before that, they're Marxists or whatever. Th this well, is they, this is yeah. what I so here is. I think this is what I, 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 I this is what I thought of reading the articles. What I thought of was this um, tr this uh, this whole like line of uh, approach to the world is the socialist version of those ads that you see on the bottom of really shitty websites uh, uh, that say, you know, here's a, here's a, a, you know, click here for one neat trick to burn <laughs> away all that stubborn belly fat, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, without dieting, you know, like it's the socialist version of, of one, one neat trick uh, to, to solve all of the world's problems. All we have to do is be on the side of the workers. Right. The ruling uh, classes hate this man. Yeah, ruling <laughs> classes don't want you to know this one trick. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. All you have to do is be on the side of working uh, the working masses, and that way, we don't, you don't have to deal with any of the stubborn belly fat that is the 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 absolute impossibilities that the reality throws in your uh you know in in your path in your way on the road to socialism the absolutely impossible impassable uh, obstacles that you have we have to find you if we are going to be serious about engaging in the world and actually changing it we have to engage with these immovable walls we can't just sneak around them with one neat trick the um, have the lifting heavy and 30 minutes of cardio three times a week of socialism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You, it turns out the key to losing that stubborn belly fat is to have a calorie deficit. Uh, <laughs> You know, less fewer calories in than calories out. Boom. That, Canceled. That's end of the day. Like that Canceled. is how that works. And in the, and similarly, you know, uh, you have to. You can't just get around the fact uh, that there are that the world is complicated and difficult and frustrating, and things happen that don't fit neatly into your utopian vision uh, of uh, how the future is supposed to come, uh, and you have to deal with that. It's a lot like the Protestant Reformation. You know, it's like there's some very sound, valid criticisms, but then the Reformation happened. And then the results of the Reformation, there's, there's nothing pretty about it at all. There's nothing about 
uh, when Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door and you like try to hide until they go away, there's nothing in you know about the criticisms that Luther had of the of the medieval Catholic Church. So, so in order in order to accept Luther's criticisms of the Catholic Church, it means you have to accept the logical end result of that, which is like mega churches, Jehovah's Witnesses knocking at your door, <laughs> and well, it's it's like what we it's like what I've always said is like. Just like at like Christians, they can't just be like, "Oh no, you th- th- that guy's not a Christian because he does these sins or whatever." And everyone l- looks takes that argument. And it's just like that's fucking intellectually dishonest. That's horseshit. You're just like right. no true Scotsman in Christianity. Right, right. Exactly. That's what we have to do as Marxists. We have to whatever fucking Pol Pot was trying to do. We have to be like, yeah, he he thought he was doing Marxism. So. That's on us. That's something that we have to deal deal with. Whatever right. Deng Xiaoping was doing, whatever fucking Stalin was doing, that's all the legacy of Marxism that we have to deal with. Whenever anarchists throw Paul Pot at me, I just say, yeah, but it was Vietnamese communists who took him out. So and he and he was partially backed and funded by the CIA. So, so <laughs> also Paul Pot was just a communizer, dude. Paul Pot was just doing anarchism. <laughs> so a couple of things. <laughs> a couple of things here. <laughs> Let me gather myself, um, Kevin. So uh, you're essentially uh, actually what your critique, Kevin. I I can't see an author's name for the article that we read. Um, the third camp, socialism from below, and the first principle of revolutionary socialism. Chris, um, mm-hmm. that's a Daniel Randall. Daniel Randall. Okay. So yes. he actually. This is one of those articles where I was sympathetic, like for the first half and. Uh, uh, eventually disgusted, but he he kind of uh, lays out your critique pretty lucidly. Um, he says, um, "Democratic revolutionary." Okay, we require, in other words, a comprehensive perspective for working class power from below and above. To achieve that, our class needs its own political organizations, democratic revolutionary parties, to overemphasize uh, socialism from below as the summarizing concept of revolutionary politics can lead uh, to de-emphasizing the vital necessity of permanent political organization. The idea of socialism from below can serve us as a literary device, but only if it is part of a more thoroughgoing, independent working class politics. And what I think he's doing there is defining the idea that the working class cannot rule except by and for itself which often is just kind of this uh, very vague principle that can be positioned right, right. against any kind of, a th- of anything that can become authoritarian. So in a sense, the anarchists are actually <laughs> uh, more clear eyed uh, yes. and more and more um, like less in denial about the principles they're standing on than this okay. tradition we're looking at, which is, claiming in this uh, more towards the disgust area of this article that third campus need to reconnect socialism with, with its libertarian core. So um, yeah, I just think it's very interesting that all of this stuff goes back to the very beginning. It's, it's, it's in the, the genus of the opposition, which mm-hmm. we were talking about in our, in our text thread, right? Uh, this yeah. this uh, this thing that I'm very sympathetic to and, and understand has to be taken up, and also where it leads, almost invariably, it's uncomfortable. 
Yeah, no, exactly. That, I completely agree that, uh, that that was definitely along along lines of what I was thinking throughout all these readings of uh, you sound like an anarchist. And if you actually applied these principles consistently, you would be. Uh, and if that's the, you know, the tack that you want to uh, take on these things, fine, go for it. Uh, you know, then you're at least being intellectually honest and internally consistent. But uh, trying to pretend like you're a Leninist, uh, some flavor of Leninist uh, and an advocate of some form of workers state um, uh, in in any you know any any version, then that's I- incompatible with the principles that you're laying out here because it, it, uh, it it's laying it it, uh, it it every time it tries to criticize any opponent of U.S. empire um, or target of a U.S. empire, uh, perhaps might be more accurate. Um, <clears throat> it does so by saying, "Well, this isn't you know a a, a perfect egalitarian." Uh, stateless, classless society. So therefore, it's not a workers' state, um, and therefore, uh, um, uh, you know, we have to be on the side of the workers against their state, uh, against this this opponent of uh, U.S. empire. Um, when the, if when the, uh, to when it, what it means to be a Leninist is to be uh, to recognize. I would say recognize, maybe anarchists would characterize this differently, but I'm not an anarchist, so I'm not going to speak for them. But it, it means to recognize that they're, uh, uh, the, the world is a, a rocky and bumpy place, and there are ups and downs, and some people are more ready and willing to advance uh, history than others at any given moment. And those individuals should get together in a party representative of uh, the ascendant class and help to move that class toward its goals. Um, That means that not every single member of the class is equally going to be (laughs) participating in it in in every, you know, moment uh, of its development at at every stage, every point in history or whatever. And so you can if that's what your archetype is or whatever, this is your, your, what, you know, uh, if it's not this, then it's not a worker's state. Then there, there is no true Scotsman. There is no, tr- no. even the USSR <laughs> in 1917, uh, you know, in, uh, in November of 1917 was not this. Uh, and, uh, it, you can always render this criticism. It always gets you out from under, uh, whatever, uh, thing uh, uh, point of international conflict it is that you're analyzing it gets you out from under having to deal with the hard questions of reality that's exactly right i was trying to come up with uh, the motivations that led that lead people to orienting toward this kind of politics of their campism and certainly what led to them and like the stuffiness of the bureaucracy and the 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 let's say diminished or uh, un- unappealing uh, level of proletarian power relative to the aspirations. Those are the reasons that, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. But on the other hand, there's also, and I feel like we've talked about these already, basic liberal qualms with the notion of the individual, like this particular event occurrence is not precisely uh, to my 
to my satisfaction. So it's not just that like I'm going to be an opponent of you know the Communist Party and their Stalinists, whatever. But I'm not even going to be able to form a league of dissenters with other dissenters because the way that I'm dissenting is different than the way they're dissenting. And then the last thing is, well, it's a somewhat, I would say, a completely unscientific conception of revolution and thus of socialism. And Kevin, you just kind of spoke to that anyways. It's just like the way that this happens. I think about the the conversation in uh, in the movie Reds between John Reed and Emma Goldman. Yeah. He's like, he says something like, up until this point, you've only had to deal with the revolution in terms of theory. Right. Um, so this, uh, just previously, the, the, is it Randall, Daniel Randall? He quotes, uh, uh, yeah, I think so. He quotes, um, so in the split of the SWP, um, Schachtman is arguing against Trotsky, right? Against his right. theory of the Soviet Union. And he says, I believe it to be speaking of uh, and using scientific language to uh, propose very unscientific theories of revolution. He says, I believe it to be scientifically correct to repeat with Marx that the emancipation of the working class is the task of the working class itself. I I have no disagreement with that, but you have to define what the hell that means. You can't just say the working class itself the proletarian revolution cannot be made by others than the proletariat acting. You're essentially, like Kevin said, creating this blank check to write against any any right. organization that tries to uh, deal with real politic. Uh, you know, it's like, I don't really know um, what, it can mean anything is basically what I'm saying. Well, right. that's, that's a big part of why I'm uh, so into our the way that we've revisited and studied the the history of the Czechoslovak socialist experience, because that is like to a T a perfect expression of worker self-emancipation and also of Stalinism. So like now what? Yeah. If I was going to reference the, the victorious February in Czechoslovakia, in Czechoslovakia, but also the Cuban revolution. So in the ISO, we were always told that the communists came to power by a, a top down coup in Czechoslovakia, and in the Cuban Revolution, uh, the workers wanted to go out on strike in support of Fidel Castro, and uh, Castro told them, no, me and my, like, 14 guerrillas are going to take care of everything, which is all, both of those are completely false, right? Yeah, totally. So, um, the workers went out on strike in, there was like a a, a general strike in Havana, basically shut the country down, and that's when uh, Batista fled, and then... Castro linked up with the striking workers and revolutionary Cubans won. So like that is not good enough for the, uh, to be considered a uh, workers emancipating themselves because, because why? Because the leadership was improper. It wasn't a consciously non-Stalinist socialist at the head of the revolution. They, they don't have a problem with Castro's uh, uh, class origins. Obviously he was the middle class. He was a lawyer, just like, all just of like the, Lenin, just like all the communists that mm-hmm. have ever existed, <laughs> uh, leaders. I Hell mean. yeah, like me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what, you know, Kevin is going to be our next Lenin, right? Yeah. No, but uh, and then with the same with the the situation with with Victorious February, it, it was clearly a something that would have been impossible without the general strike of Czech workers. Czechoslovak workers, 
uh, bringing the Communist Party into power. But the problem was, is the leadership for them. So it's really not a not an issue of class dynamics at all of class involvement in emancipation it's a a very top-down view of what actually ideology okay right exactly so it's a it's a problem with ideology the ideology at the top was incorrect so it doesn't matter how much support there was from the bottom it's not a workers movement which is not marxism like at all actually not at all in fact it's liberal it's like it's liberal idealism is what it is if you have or a group of individuals with good ideas for, at the top of society, it's it's basically that idea that liberals have for the way that the world should work and the world should be structured, superimposed onto Marxism. The good ideas force. But yeah, it's good ideas force, right? It's the yeah. the good ideas midichlorians. It's going to follow the space force. It's going to be <laughs> the sixth sixth uh, ser- armed services. Well, and so it makes sense, really, if you think about it. During the Great Depression and the Second World War, the Communist Party was by far the only significant and important left-wing force. It had the the allegiance of the working class, it had the prestige of the Soviet Union, and then you fast forward a little bit after the Cold War. What's left are various kinds of idealist, middle-class, largely student kind of politics, and the third camp really is significant, primarily, at least as far as I know, in the. 1970s through the the early 2000s in the English-speaking world. And I, I feel like there's a connection there that is maybe even so simple that it doesn't even need to be explained. There's no, like, Dutch trade union, <laughs> which is also a third-campus group, you know? Right. But we have to distinguish historically between the origin of the use of it, which Trotsky ter- uh, coins, right? Um, yeah, right. And then the later use of it, like, you're, you're referencing the new left. So, and this actually, so I think it's again in this Randall um, article, he coined it in 1918, Trotsky did, coined the, uh, the third camp uh, to describe the revolutionary working class as an independent third camp in the February Revolution. Right. So that's a very different meaning. I think. Well, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, but that was the intended meaning the whole time. Well, the, I wanted to, with that, return back to the Sedova um, because she, I think she makes a very pre- prescient point, which even though I disagree with her um, prognosis of Eastern Bloc countries, et cetera, as uh, not being worker states at all, uh, I think she makes a real point to the rest of the fourth international when she says it's denying the basic reason for its existence (laughs) as the world party of the socialist revolution, because they're, yeah, because because it it is betraying its original principle. And, uh, and I guess the point is, uh, as I said in our text, like, um, what did I say? How did I put it? Uh, principles do not a politics make alone. Principles alone do not a politics make. Like there's more at play than absolute fidelity to a single principle. And with the opposition, you have uh, the needed opposition to Stalinism, right? But there's also another goal, which is the socialist revolution, which has been begun in the USSR. And so, um, yeah, that's maybe 
is more contested. I think even in 1951, when she's resigning, I think it's much more complex. Um, so she is both completely right and wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think that's entirely right. And I think the, the, the big problem with this is that the vast majority of us just can't abide that reality of, of holding two mutually opposed positions at the same time. Like, you know, you come into uh, an awareness of the world. Just using my own, my own story as an example. You want to be a communist because everything's terrible. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, join us, we're communists. And then somebody else comes along and says, yeah, but they're not really because this is all these reasons. And that's very appealing for a while. And then at a certain point, you have to move beyond that kind of like, if this is not what I wanted it to be. And I think the problem with the third campus, that like, or third campus politics, is the, the lack of a recognition of the antagonism between these two realities. So, you're right. It's, it's very much just a politics of a principle alone. And there's, there's, there's no advocacy or there's no steps toward changing the conditions it's, it's purely just a reflection upon what has already been. Right. Uh, to me, it, it reminds me of like being punk when I was a kid, <laughs> where like I got into punk rock and I listened to all the bands. And then I was just like, wait a minute. Most of these bands are for posers. I'm only into <laughs> these bands. And I listened to those, you know, that select group of real punk rock bands until I got into my like late mid to late twenties, and I'm just like, you know, it doesn't fucking matter. I like all these bands actually. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna go put on fucking Green Day or great. Actually. Yeah, like, dude, how come <laughs> yeah. the Wolves fucking slaps? That's a good album, all right? <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, honestly, like, but Jason and my trajectory is like almost identical, um, and I I agree. It's it's the same sort of thing where like. My, I sharpened my politics to a point where they were completely fucking irrelevant. And the only right. way that they could matter was by attaching them onto the liberal social movements. Right. And that, that is the, that is our legacy as, as the ISO is we helped funnel a bunch of people into the, into liberal, into liberal politics. That's uh, the reason why we talk about this so much. Yeah. Like, at the podcast, it yeah. might not be, um, it might not be everybody's uh, personal experience, but this is our penance. You know, we have to account for it and make up for the fact that what we did with our lives for yeah. a ten very years long on time, my part. Yes, yeah. almost. Uh, well, whatever. I'll say twelve, but it might, whatever, thirteen maybe of mine. Honestly, yeah, y'all yeah. recruited me into it, so yeah, we were yeah, we were me, already yeah, in it for too. a few years before we met y'all. <laughs> yeah, so like. Um, well, and also like when I, in conversations I've been having with people like uh, in our discord or whatever, uh, I find that a lot of them uh, have a lot of the same criticisms, but they're more diffuse because mm. of how much the politics of the ISO became distilled and uh, spread out into the DSA and basically became yeah. the left without any acknowledgement of this torturous uh, pseudo Marxism that, it, that they come from. So it, in some ways, you know, the younger kids, they have it a little bit better because at least it's just liberalism. They don't have to like trace it all the way back through. Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, I, it's it's just liberalism is exactly the, the problem and, 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 and also the reason for its existence. It's sort of the dialectic that at play there that, that causes it to be a problem is, uh, it, it is it's that, that it is just liberalism because this is the, you know, these are, that's, this is the. 
the ideology um, uh, right. in in the Marxist sense that that people come to uh, uh, politics with. Uh, it's right, and, and you know, it's it's that sort of youthful na- naivety uh, that uh, an enthusiasm for the. Uh, and hope for a, the possibility of a better world that you know draws you into clinging to these uh, ho- you know these ideals and and that's what makes it more appealing is that oh you know oh these guys are are posers they're not they're not the real true Scotsman uh, we're the true Scotsman and 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 so like when you're uh, young and naive that that it, it draws you in when uh, when you're uh, kind of dumb and uh, uh, gullible, you get drawn in by the, the one neat trick to burn the belly fat. You know that stubborn <laughs> belly fat. You know you get. That's the reason those ads exist because there are people who click on it and pay money to people uh, yeah. to, to whoever's posting the ad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and as long as you find new ones, it doesn't matter how many people drop off. As long as right. more people come in. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. And a- actually, it, compared to this sort of um, what, what we're talking about is the prioritization of identification with authenticity over and so often against, I mean, against any kind of, um, I don't know, motivating force to affect real political change or even just momentum of any kind toward real politics and in against that i actually have have developed more respect for even a liberal kind of economism that is like actually affecting the world in some kind of way well right and and i also have it also makes you have to kind of admire the people the apostates and these cold warriors who made a decision as opposed to just kind of being on this uh, n- nowhere, you know, right, throughout right. the Cold War, just not deciding one way or, or another, always having the perfected uh, position that had no way of being enacted. You know, it's like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that that kind of makes me think about how there are really like three distinct uh, periods of third camp politics and the way that they play out the first one is that there is a workers movement and there is a common turn and there is a ussr and there are revolutions happening around the world and you're just not you're, you're just critics but like okay because there's still there are still workers rallying around a red flag and going to city groups and putting their lives on the line and so the third camp politics become the way in which dissident uh observers can look at all of what's playing out around the world and saying, that's really good. It's just, it could be better. And then during the cold war, the third camp politics become the way in which liberal leaning students get to maintain their kind of mask of radicalism while objectively only being liberals. Right. Mm -hmm. But then in in the post cold war era, that uh, second stage of that degeneration, that degeneration is complete. And so our memories of our, you know, of our past. We were part of a milieu of people that were, when they were younger, they were the, they were the in-between. We, on the other hand, were, were recruited into the milieu once it was on the other side. The only value that the third camp uh, politics had was not just to like critique the system, but actually to provide cover for the system. And that's the thing that I'm so uncomfortable with. So like you think about uh, this uh, ISR article, 
about Libya's revolution, U.S. intervention, and the left. Right. It's like so shameful to look back on it and, and think about how uh, my particular understanding of the way that the Kronstadt sailors seized the Winter Palace in 1917 was actually a part of the argument for NATO anything. Like yeah. that's, just, that's something I'm always going to have to live with forever, and I don't know what to do about that. So, yeah, I mean, and that the uh, the ISO's position on Libya, you could, you could take that and just drop it on any conflict that has happened since then. Yeah. Uh, even since the ISO is like dissolved and gone into the dustbin of history. Uh, you, you got the, the idea that you need to support the authentic workers movement in this country against the way that things are. And it's like, yeah, but like NATO is giving them weapons and yeah, but that's okay. We oppose that. We support <laughs> the authentic workers movement. So, so if you look at that uh, in Libya, they're like, oh yeah, we support the overthrowing Gaddafi. And I was like, yeah, but like now NATO is bombing Libya and killing civilians. And yeah, we don't want, well, we don't know. No, not that. Just the, uh, the authentic workers movement there. I was like, okay, so that, that was at least somewhat understandable. Like you could have, the, you could hold that cognitive dissonance, right? Be like, oh yeah, the, the Libyans don't actually want NATO there, which is what the ISR was saying. Which is not true because they asked, they p- petitioned yeah. for NATO help like constantly, and yeah. then cut deals with them immediately. But then you go, you move forward into the the situation in Syria where they're saying the same thing, while like the CIA is there giving weapons to, or the Pentagon's there giving weapons to the literal rebranded Al Qaeda uh, who wants to ethnically cleanse Jews and Christians from Syria, and. Uh, the ISO types are saying like, oh no, we don't support them. We just support the authentic workers movement that's there. I was like, okay, so like if your authentic workers movement, the coalition gets its way and then the Al Qaeda guys ethnically cleanse the Jews and the Christians there, like how does that advance the worker struggle, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it really comes down to a, to a situation where there is no third camp. Right. There's either you support the side that wants to ethnically cleanse Christians and Jews from fucking Syria or you support Assad, or you just fucking say, you know what? Like, I, I, I can't have a horse in this race because, first of all, I'm not a Syrian. I'm not over there. The only thing I can do is keep my country from bombing other people, right? Yeah. I right. mean, which, right. at best. Which, in effect, yeah, I, amounts if, to the, the yeah. very same, which, in effect, amounts to the very same thing of saying, I have a third camp position. Mm-hmm. What are your demands exactly mean? Right. <laughs> What do your oppositions mean? Nothing. Right. On that basis, that's actually the real critique. It's like, the way that all this stuff plays out in the real world of all of our lives is that we live in the United States. And so you have to make a decision based upon that reality. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you... Go, you march around downtown, then you bring several thousand people to sit in at like a, let's say the Ukrainian consulate or the Russian or the Russian consulate. You're not picking a third camp. Doesn't matter what you imagine you would like there to be, because in fact, you live in the country that would prefer you if you did that, and you put demands upon the Russians, not because it's going to make any difference, but because it's going to make continuing to supply weapons to the Ukrainian side easier. Right. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, in this situation, like, this is like the the war in Ukraine is the 
you know, the tragedy farce and then whatever comes after yeah. that uh, yeah. version of, right. of this third campism where now we're straight up just saying, no, it's totally rad and cool to, for NATO to, to fight a proxy war in Russia uh, against Russia because Russia is the ultimate evil in the world. And we, we need to be on the side of good imperialism instead of bad imperialism. That's exactly, so yeah, this is exactly right. So this is what I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, after we rendered the, um, whatever, <laughs> psychoanalyzing and structural uh, criticism of the of the third campus position, I, I wanted to also say, and, uh, and, and also, um, even if we drill down and take them on their own terms, um, even if we read them charitably, and take them on their own terms. Uh, it's it's fucking bullshit because yeah, it's it's totally bullshit. Uh, the recurrent, the, exactly what you just said, Jay, uh, or Chris, uh, of um, we support the good imperialism and not the bad imperialism, while pretending to be Marxists, they seem to uniformly have the position that. The definition of imperialism is in is when one country uses military force against another country. Right. That's not imperialism. <laughs> it's unrelated, in fact. It's not that's not imperialism. <laughs> so when when Lance Selfa says, Oh, well, you know, Marxists were uh Mar- Marx uh was for you know the workers' movements uh, in every country and against the uh, uh, the ruling class in every uh, country and didn't support one side against the other, whatever, etc., whatever. Uh, um, that's not the world that we currently live in. There are some people who will set who 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 make the point that uh, so-called anti-imperialists in the West today. Um, are just American exceptionalists turned on their head because everything is just anti-America. What that position ignores, what that criticism ignores, uh, is the fact that the world we currently live in is one of uh, U.S. hegemony, global hegemony. That is a different world condition, historical condition, than one of inter-imperial rivalry, where there are multiple capitalist imperialist forces competing with each other and, and ascending toward uh, the great world wars that we now, uh, in w- with the hindsight and history, regard as World War One and World War Two. Right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, in that world, there really is... Um, the possibility of allying with the working classes in multiple um, uh, competing imperial powers uh, against each other and not taking anybody's sides against uh, the other ones. The world that we live in is one of global hegemony of the United States. The United States controls the entire world. The greatest obstacle to uh, international proletarian revolution is U.S. hegemony. The number one enemy of uh, international proletarian revolution is U.S. hegemony. Uh, if we as even outside of the United States, but especially since we are inside of the United States, if we are going to intervene on international politics, our only role anywhere in the world as socialists is to oppose U.S. hegemony. That's it. 
I could see why there are objections to that uh, very stark and uh, discouraging sort of view of the world because it it's it's very uncomfortable because yeah. like there's there's really not much we can do about it. Um, but I also think that like it lead that sort of that way of thinking definitely leads to like Marxist Leninists becoming like a sadist, basically cheerleading anybody who stands up to the U.S. anywhere in the world, right? right. Um, which is also not useful. So yeah, I mean that's what I I want to what I want to say, and I I understand like the like Putin's a horrible person with a who runs a horrible regime, and I you know I, I get the sort of human disgust at that. Mm-hmm. But the, the my the first thing I want to say in response response to that is I don't give a shit. Right. <laughs> I don't give a shit if somebody cheerleads somebody else. Who cares? We are all spectators sitting on the sidelines cheering and booing. Who gives a shit if somebody cheers for the wrong person? I don't care. Uh, what matters is we are participants in we you know as as uh, removed as we may be uh, from true a truly democratic state in the United States, we have some you know minor um, involvement in uh, the the running of this uh, the, the 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 governance of this state, and our role is to oppose U.S. Uh, involvement in uh, in whatever in, uh, global conflicts. I, 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 what does it fucking matter if somebody cheerleads the wrong side uh, against the U.S. or whatever? I, it doesn't matter. But even if we were to grant that it does matter, even if we were to grant that, I would take somebody cheerleading Putin over somebody uh, putting themselves in the in this so-called third campus position that functionally lends its support to U.S. empire more than it um, than it opposes U.S. empire. I would say that like that the Putin cheerleader on, on the U.S. left or whatever is less consequential than yeah. the uh, like th- they're LARPing. They're generally politically irrelevant. That's right. They're, uh, you know, they're not to be taken seriously. And uh, as much as I think that they're wrong and stupid, I also don't take them seriously. So like, yeah. And, and I think that like, while those people are wrong and stupid and not to be taken seriously, I feel like third campists who are cheerleading NATO are traitors um, to, to the, everything that they claim to represent. And on top of that, they're in a position to, to give cover to the dominant narrative of uh, American hegemony in the imperial core uh, to give leftist cover to that, you know, and to, to bring more people on board to the project when the only thing that we can do, if we can do anything is to oppose it. Yeah. Like this workers, liberty workers, liberty article. uh, What is it called? Ukraine and fetishizing the anti-NATO call, which is like, it's a pretty good dead giveaway about what kind of an article this is. But um, it says that the defeat of Ukraine would be a setback for democracy. Right. So, like, and that's, you know, setting aside the fact that the Ukrainian government, like, has outlawed trade unions and various left-wing parties and also even is not going to have a, an election this year or whatever. Yeah. Um, setting all that aside, it, it makes that position very clear that that means that the United States 
is supporting democracy. And then further, it says, uh, it refers to Vladimir Putin and his Stalinist predecessors. And again, it's like, if, if Putin has Stalinist predecessors, that means Stalin had Tsarist predecessors, which means essentially all of the other stuff, it's all just window dressing for the clash of civilizations narrative in which the liberal democratic US, the, those are the good guys. And uh, if that's really what you think, then I think, yeah, the third camp is, yeah, the third camp is entirely without value. And it already was anyways, but it's definitely without value now. Actually, I, th- I feel like, um, so this Barry Finger, this Workers' Liberty, is what I was expecting the Lance Selfa to be. And actually, I was quite surprised. So I think Selfa is astute and mostly correct. And like he lays out all the, exa- the same exact critiques we are in great detail about why NATO, supporting NATO, is catastrophic and how there's literally no argument for it. And he, he sort of paints the picture of folks like Gilbert Ashkar and all these other leftists who are coming out pro, no-fly zone, etc. And then you get to the very last two <laughs> paragraphs. When he, he basically um, says, after making this very clear case for why this sort of uh, NATO apologia is... Uh, just absurd. He basically says, so we demand an end to NATO military operations. And just like Chris said, and we also (laughs) demand (laughs) that we support the opposition to Qaddafi. And it's like, it's just a very weird. um, It's not even a sleight of hand. It's just like a very weird uh, kind of, I don't think cognitive dissonance begins to describe it. Well, what it what it amounts to is shrugging your shoulders, but then not recognizing that you're shrugging your shoulders. You're saying, there's one view of this, which is like, you look at it and go, eh, because there's nothing to do. Whereas we're not going to shrug, even though there's still nothing to do, we're just not going to acknowledge out loud that, that's, that there's nothing to do. So, there was a... When we first joined the ISO, Jason, a bunch of Sparts showed up at the beginning of the semester oh, yeah, uh, on that. campus uh, uh, where we were at UT and um, basically started shit-talking the ISO to everybody uh, that was coming up to the table and stuff like that and saying that uh, you shouldn't join the ISO. The ISO are like, uh, they're liberals, they're, you know, they're bad, they... Uh, they didn't even support our call in 1979 for uh, <laughs> workers' councils in Iran. And, uh, and, we, and we in the ISO rightly were like, You've, this is fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> workers' councils in Iran? Like, uh, yeah, sure. Like, it, it would have been cool if the workers' councils would have, like, taken over and there would have been, like, a Soviet-Iranian government. Like, uh, yeah, that would have been awesome. But, like calling for that what 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 fucking good is it when 14 14 spartacists call for something in a different country that nobody supports you know that's my favorite um, takedown circa yeah. circa 2010 <laughs> yeah. 2000 it was in the like 2004 or 5 or something okay. like that but um 
similarly, there were criticisms like because the, the ISO supported the resistance to the American occupation of Iraq and the Spartans were like, well, you should be calling for the support of the workers' councils in Iraq. I'm like, there are no fucking workers' councils in Iraq, dude. But anyway, so the Spartans, uh, the ISO criticized the Spartans, rightfully so, because that's really stupid. But that's what the ISO is doing with every single conflict uh, moving forward is essentially just a less ridiculous version of what the Spartans were doing. Of what we were doing is we were competing to be the best spectators. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, and that's how I feel. A lot of like critics of the dumb, unnuanced, like clumsy ML anti-imperialist left. A lot of critics of the of of that stupidity remind me a lot of the ISO. It's like, Oh, you're not calling for the right thing. Whereas like me, an intellectual, I'm like, dude, there's nothing to fucking call for. Like, what do you mean? Like, it doesn't matter what we call for. It doesn't matter how hard we tweet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter that you really don't like Nicolas Maduro. Cause you, you don't live in Venezuela. And also there's nobody over there who's listening to you. Right. And, and there is a point to be made too, that like, Socialists are supposed to be internationalists and blah, blah, blah. That's like, right. So in, in as much as there is a movement in one of these other countries for the thing that I also want. Yeah, sure. Like I agree with that and I support it. You know, I'll even donate $15 on a GoFundMe for them or something, you know, but well, like, I mean, well, I think it's important to to point out that, uh, for example, speaking of Venezuela, like, if if U.S. socialist organizations were to ally with oppositional parties uh, who are outside of the Maduro uh, government uh, and trying to bring it down, uh, you we are functionally lending ourselves as a sort of uh, uh, unpaid agent of CIA intervention in Venezuela, right? Because yeah, right. they're yeah. not going to win. They're right. not well, yeah, exactly. it's like, take over it's in, like a, in the collapse of the Maduro regime. Right. I don't like the Contras, but I do want them to win. But then as soon as they win, then I want to oppose them. Right. <laughs> right. The imposition of real politic into our fantasy league uh, of R- <laughs> RPG politics. Yeah. Like, I mean, okay. So Lance Selfa has uh, a much better reason to... Or a, whatever, a much better uh, his his political reasoning behind supporting the opposition is much better. But there's there's no way of independently um, advocating, certainly not actualizing, like you said, pure spectatorship. These politics, you're just going to be uh, almost preemptively recuperated by the imperialist war machine by the hegemony that that you've all been um describing so well it's like there there is no independent avenue it's very sad and tragic um and it doesn't mean we should i I think we need to clarify we're not we're not advocating some kind of nihilistic isolationism in which we we um jettison internationalism as a principle it's just we have however i I mean, we're not advocating. We're not advocating that. But if the choices that you see are either that kind of disengaged uh, nihilism, or else uh, 
full-throated support of the the current imperial avengers of the united states but as a marxist then yes i actually am advocating that nihilism <laughs> well okay but nihilism could also mean that i'm going to ring you know uh nato uh imposing a no-fly zone in libya uh is none of my business either you know because it's happening over there even even if it is my my uh tax my tax dollars in in action or whatever I, I just think that you have to. It, it does matter what we say. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't matter that people are, uh, you know, supporting uh, NATO. And also, what about this whole uh, encroaching into the borders of Russia? Right with this whole advancement of NATO, saying, "Come on, bring it on, bring it on." Oh, but but that's but that's okay though because uh, Russia's bad. Yeah. So that that workers. Liberty art is it Workers Liberty article? Yeah, completely ignores the role of the United States and NATO in what has happened to Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it it doesn't mention at all that Russia was like, hey, let me let us join NATO. We'll yep. you know participate in uh, securing the the rights and liberties of democracies around the world with you. In fact, we want to be one of those, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it completely ignores that and the United States' role in ensuring that Russia didn't become too democratic and in right. getting Putin elected and in isolating and alienating Russia and encroaching on Russia with NATO. It ignores all of that in order to be able to say, uh, actually, Russia imperialism, bad. NATO imperialism, less bad. So NATO imperialism, good. You know, I mean, it's just like that article was the I mean, I, the, I guess the way you arranged them, Jason, in reading order was from like least ridiculous to most egregious, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, so, you know, because like I could sympathize with Natalia Sadova in 1951. Yes, exactly. And then and then we work down the list. And by the end, and you're reading this this article, which the, the photograph is a, a group of people calling for a NATO. Uh, it says NATO shelter our sky and NATO help us. It's like, that's about right, actually, because that's the trajectory of the third camp. It starts off as like a, a resigned kind of hopelessness and a sadness. And then you fast forward through history and now it's it's the enemy. It is the wrong side. So, but I mean, let's let's bring it. So obviously we, none of us here, um, wants to fall into that sort of caricatured um even though I, I do think there is political truth to the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, we don't want to fall into that caricatured um, pro Assadist, you know, pro Putin um, position. Not that it matters as Kevin has <laughs> made very clear, but that's not what our politics are, obviously. Right. And if our, if our politics matter, even if they're just criticisms and spectatorship, we would still distinguish ourselves from that. Um, so what differ differentiates us from this, this uh, degenerative third campist pro NATO apologia, etc., or, or anti NATO apologia, etc. I guess I would say that to the extent that one would like to try to uh, find some terrain in which to act out your, your real po political uh, goals, they would have to start with, a workers' movement capable of exerting 
an impact upon events. Mm-hmm. That's the very first thing. So that does not exist in the U.S. already. So the problem with the the demonstrations calling for something or something else is actually fundamentally that uh, they, those demonstrations can't actually affect events. So the very first thing that I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that we all stand for this. The very first thing is there needs to be an actual workers' movement and an actual organization. Yes. In, co- in combination with that. And then beyond that, the, I mean, I don't know. I, I would have to speculate like too much. Yeah. Be- because this is a, what we're talking about is a series of positions available to us in a world which is entirely a, we can't work with it. Beyond us. Yes, yeah, entirely beyond us. So I kind of slightly disagree with what Kevin says in spirit, um, just because like, I, I do think he's right in that there's virtually nothing that we can do. Um, and our, our politics are just like projecting the best way to, to be a spectator of what's going on in the world anyway. But I do think that ideas matter. And I do think that projecting the ideas that we would like to see actualized um, matters a little bit. So, like, I, I think that we should project a politics that is not just echoing the clumsy, dumb guy anti-imperialism of the MLs. Um, I think that we should be trying to build organizations that reflect those politics um, because... Kevin is right. They don't matter now, but we would like them to matter at some point. So we have to start from a position of like, like, look, our ideas, I think, I think having good ideas is of some importance. And I would like to project those ideas onto whatever I would like to build. And I know that Kevin, you're not disagreeing with that, Kevin. I I don't want to mischaracterize what you're saying, but I do want to make that clear to anybody who's listening and might think otherwise. Well, to to that extent, that that would just mean, we would have to stand opposed to and try to galvanize people around opposition to uh, war budgets. Yes. That, that's it. There's nothing else right. that is even uh, possible on the horizon beyond uh, making it harder to take the money that comes out of our paychecks and you know taxes and then goes into funding a war on any terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. And I think so here's the here's what I would I, I've I have encountered some, you know, uh, some pushback on my um, uh, extreme position of <laughs> uh, we don't matter, nothing matters, nothing that we say <laughs> or do matters uh, in this regard. Um, and, and what I, what I want to say in response to that, uh, you know, it's, it's an important rejoinder to make, uh, and, and I think it is uh, important to not be, uh, misunderstood on the, on that, in that regard. And I think the reason that it does matter to not be, uh, misunderstood in that regard is because it is true that I think that revolutionary theory matters. I, I, I think that w- w- why it matters and what matters about it is not that we have to always and everywhere, everyone always everywhere has to take exactly the correct position on every international conflict. Rather, the reason that revolutionary theory matters is it informs us in every new instance, in every new moment that we encounter in the world, it informs 
what p- position we take that has a material uh, consequence that has some material impact on the world. And as we, you know, if, if we were to develop into a, 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 if the left, we as the left, as uh, socialists were to develop into something that actually mattered, we would need to be capable of taking more nuanced positions on things uh, as they arise more than just stop the U S war machine, which is the only position that materially that has a material impact currently. Um, so as we move toward a world where the left matters, uh, if, if we have any part of us that still hopes for that, uh, which I do, um, then yes, revolutionary theory matters and be having a correct analysis of the world does matter. Um, uh, but the, f- the fact is we live in a world where uh, we we're not there yet. Uh, I, w- I would like to see that world come into existence, but it's not there. Uh, and uh, where we currently stand, I would, I would rather see uh, dumb guy socialists um, <laughs> waving a Russian flag than uh, waving a NATO flag. So yeah, sure. Same. Sure. Like 10 times. Oh, I'm going to be 10? a third campus here and that- say, I'd rather see neither. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so what do we do? What does that look like? We all join code pink. Are we all, uh, jo- <laughs> I mean, do we have to do that before we build any kind of socialist um, praxis uh, organization capable of praxis? Is, every- so. is everything on hold or do we do it concurrently? Cause I think that uh, I, what, go ahead. I think that to, to use your, your expression, everything is on hold until actual forces can be brought to bear on any situation. So, if you want to be a good socialist and you want to affect the world, don't go to a protest with the right sign. Doesn't matter. Until the people going to the protest are going going to the protest as representatives of all the office workers or um, all of the lathe workers. Until that's the case, going to the protest with the right politics it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter at all. So, being right doesn't matter yet. No, it's I, 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 so to, to Chris's point, I think, uh, being right does matter in so far as it has material consequences. Um, and we can tell what's being right, uh, by, you know, developing our understanding of revolutionary theory, et cetera. Uh, but it's just, uh, the, 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 the material conditions of the world that we currently live in are very fucking simple. <laughs> very, very, very uh, uh, depressingly simple. Uh, the United States is the global hegemon, and it enforces the capitalist world order that we currently exist in. A couple months ago, there was almost a railroad strike, and then the Democrats and their socialist uh, enablers act used federal court powers of the state to put an injunction and stop the workers, from affecting their own lives. And then those same people and apologists and critics from within those ranks can go out into the streets and say something about an event in another country. Like, here's what we think about, whatever, Romania and Moldova and their relationship to Ukraine or or something. I think it makes sense, but you have to clarify the, the, the way that you get to actually being able to impede the war machine is through everyone coming out 
with the political position against the war machine as workers, as railway workers, as unions. So I was talking about social, a social, properly socialist politics being on hold. Yeah, that's what it was. And um, it seems yeah. to be that there's actually a kind of a, in, I don't want to say dialectic, but there's kind of a dialectic between um, everything being on hold and uh, socialist politics being on hold until yeah. we can actually have a socialist politics to affect the thing that is making mm-hmm. socialist politics be on hold. Yes, frankly, I think that uh, uh, <laughs> truly, like if, if we were to be truly workerist about it, we would be functionally in the United States, we would be functionally like Zionist uh, labor uh, um, uh, in, you know, uh, actually being worse for um, the indigenous population of uh, Palestine than the bourgeois uh, Zionists, uh, frankly. Uh, and I and I think uh, uh, to be a first worldist workerist uh, would be the same thing. I think a, 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 a truly socialist politics are in the first world are on hold until we can organize workers as workers to oppose imperialism, and until uh, we change the world conditions sufficiently that um, international proletarianism is on the uh, order of the day again trying to fight for this or that reform uh, under capitalism i man i don't even know if i want to entirely say this cuz this is i partially this is i've said before you know i've got a reformist on one shoulder and a accelerationist on the other and this is my accelerationist speaking right now so i'm not totally invested in it you got Jake Sakai on his shoulder right now i think that's <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, Sakai uh, yeah i'm uh, i'm uh, against uh, for the first world workers um, there's a part of me that is saying that, but I'm not totally invested in it. So I, I'm sorry to derail us, but I, well, no, oh, I, I, don't I wanna, think I don't want I derailed us with my question. I guess, Kevin, I think you're right. I think it does matter what we think about everything, whatever. But I actually think that the only meaningful practice is building socialist organization in the workplace, so that it can affect the workplace. And as a result of that, it then can affect the broader society, including any number of social justice causes and anti-war protests and so on. But until that time, the only meaningful socialist practice is to stay away from that those areas and take all that energy to the extent that it exists and direct it toward organizing the working class. And that means you don't say, well, until until the... Until such time as there is a meaningful uh, working class upsurge, we're just going to go outside and protest as the social, as the people with the right ideas, because that's the recipe for never getting there. You take your your handful of friends and your right ideas, and you take them into the workplace, and you organize those workers. And then once the the socialist contingent at a demonstration can be those workers, you then it shouldn't exist. I mean, as, as, as heartening as it is to see people pouring out into the streets to support uh, Palestine and oppose, you know, uh, what's going on. I mean, to, to oppose Israel's uh, genocide there, um, it's functionally still the same thing. It, like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. And a majority of these people are still going to vote for the genocider in chief uh, against Trump in the coming election anyway. 
So yeah, I guess it does. I mean, it's. I think I would. Uh, I would say it matters because I think everything matters in a properly yeah. Hegelian sense. I think what yeah, the, I, mean, I think, I think what the right the, wing does matters. I think what yeah. the liberal establishment does matters. I just don't think it all matters as socialist politics. As yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. I was, I was trying to figure out how to say that because I don't want to say abstain from everything. I just right. mean that you have to you have to make a clear distinction between socialist praxis and then whatever thing that you are doing that you care about in lieu of that socialist praxis. Okay. Yeah. That being said, like the protests don't really matter. <laughs> I mean, in answer to your question, I you know on the on the on the you know anti-Palestinian genocide uh, protests and stuff, I you know I I have I'm I have deeply ambivalent feelings every time I see one of these things where I there is a part of me that is deeply touched and uh, and I and enthusiastic uh to see people coming together and forcing you know i don't at this with something like this like i don't even give a shit if it's workers or what it just do do what whatever works whatever works uh to impede an active ongoing genocide i am grateful to see it right Uh, there's another part of me that sees it and says yeah, a lot of people did a whole lot of work to get a city council to pass a yeah. non-binding resolution uh, yep. against the ongoing genocide in favor of a ceasefire, and nothing right well, happens. This, this is where this is where uh, this is where um, I think the so, saying whether something matters or not perhaps is uh, rhetorically um, can can. Uh, emotionally satisfy us in some way but isn't uh doesn't do justice to reality yeah, because because fair. because uh it doesn't matter in the sense of it's none of it's going to stop the genocide it right. matter it matters outside of gaza it matters right. in um building capacity for anti-zionist jewish organizations it matters for shifting discourse and kind of alienating and disalienating different uh, demographics but no even even the 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 uh south africa's case in the uh the world court um it matters a great deal but not in the sense of actually being a solution yeah i think i think that that's the proper framework because i i don't ever want to be in the position of saying nothing is meaningful until that such time as as the working class seizure power is likely that's nonsense so i want to step back from anything that sounds like it either does or doesn't matter you know yeah and i think you you make you make a good point
Работи и гъстияни не смогат да правят тесла. Тесла не е само бъдето, че 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 не